If you remember last week, or if you weren't here last week, uh, three visitors showed up to visit Abraham. And of these three visitors, we, we know that at least one of them was God. We're not exactly sure what the other two were, but God's presence was expressed by the attendance of these three visitors. And during that time, they, they met and they discussed the birth of Isaac, and they made sure to do it in the hearing of Sarah. And then they addressed the promises given to Sarah and her issue of unbelief. Well, when we pick up in the 16th verse this morning, we're picking up as they get up to leave. So they're leaving the, the luncheon. And they're going somewhere else. And this is what it says in verse 16. I'm going to read 16 to 19. Then the men of God got up to leave. Or excuse me. When the men of God got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Now I want to stop there because I think this passage, these three verses, sum up nicely what the entire purpose of the tale or narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah is about. That if you're wondering, if you've ever wondered why are some of these difficult stories in Scripture, or why is this here? Well, this particular story, God tells us why it's here. You see, so he's walking with Abraham's walking with them as they're leaving, and their attentions are beginning to transition down towards the cities of the plain, not the least of which is Sodom. And, and the Lord says this thing. Now, I'm not sure whether he muses internally or whether he actually says this, says this, or whether he says it to himself, or whether it's a conversation with the three visitors. I'm not sure which it is, but he says, should I, re, should I allow Abraham into this circle of trust? It's kind of what he says. Should I let Abraham know what we're going to do? And then he begins to reason to himself... What's at stake here? And he says to himself, after all, Abraham's going to be a nation one day in much the same way that the cities in the plain are a nation. And after all, Abraham's descendants are going to be part of this nation. And I've promised to bless all of the world through his descendants. So maybe they should know what's going to happen. And after all, he says, but I, his children and the household that comes after him needs to know how to walk in the way of the Lord. And they need to know what righteousness and justice look like. And then he says, and after all, the entire way that I expect to fulfill my promises to my people is through their righteousness and justice. So he invites Abraham along. Now, I say that this is a good introduction because I think this is why the story of Sodom is in the life of Abraham. I think God tells, invites Abraham to come along with him so that Abraham can see for himself what God's just and righteous understanding of justice and righteousness is. You see that? God is saying to Abraham, you come with me, you watch how I look at things. You observe me observing the world. And then maybe... 
you will be able to raise a nation that has some correct idea of justice and righteousness. That's why the story is in the life of Abraham. It's because God wants Abraham to see what true justice and true righteousness looks like. And that is why I think it's in Scripture. God could have done this with Abraham and it could have not made Scripture. There's plenty of stuff that doesn't make Scripture. Why does this make Scripture? I think it's because God muses the same question about His people. Should I tell my people what I've done to Sodom? After all, they are my great nation. After all, I did promise that the whole world would be blessed through him. We are the household of Abraham, are we not? After all, I've promised the whole world will be blessed through these people. After all, I've called them to walk in my ways and to live in a just and right way. And after all, my promises that I've promised to keep are done through justice and righteousness of the church. So God puts it into Scripture. So this morning, if you've ever wondered why this troubling story of Sodom and Gomorrah, why do we get to read about Lot and his mistakes? If you're wondering these things, I'm here to say that it's in the Scriptures so that you can understand what God's just and right use and understanding of justice and righteousness are. God is giving this to us so that if we're trying to understand how do, how do we view justice and righteousness, we look to stories like this, this of all places, to understand. How about we pray and then we'll turn to the account. Lord, guide us now in your word. Guide us in our understanding. Lord, when we hit the hard parts, I pray your spirit would carry us. Lord, give us ears to hear and give us a desire only for truth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look in chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, we're going to kind of begin this, this uh, journey towards Sodom. So the Lord makes the decision to, to, to write Abraham into the story, and then he says this to him. The Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now there's two, there's two things in these two, these two verses that I think help guide us as to how the Lord behaves. Because we see things, and typically, right, we're, we're all human enough, we're all humans here, we're all human enough to know that, that the culture outside loves to think of the Old Testament God as a city wrecker as kind of a lightning bolt thrower, kind of city destroyer. So if we're going to understand God's justice and righteousness here, we should observe two things. The first one is, with this phrase, the outcry of their grievous sins has reached me. And to say that whatever happens to Sodom, it's no, it is no small thing they've done. Sodom hasn't done a small thing. This isn't an occasional sin. This isn't that Sodom messed up one time. The outcry is overwhelmingly grievous. And it has reached the Lord. It's the culmination of a sin, not the occasion of sin. There's great injustice. It's this idea of outcry. Now, it's been asked. I've asked myself. People have asked me. Writers of commentaries have asked. Where is this outcry coming from? if the city is so evil. 
right? If the city is evil, who's crying out? I don't think we should understand the outcry as a prayer to God. I think we should understand the outcry as a natural byproduct of brokenness and injustice in the world. Brokenness and injustice cries out. We see it all the time. The church sees and responds to the outcry of injustice. We see things like those child armies in the Sudan. That cries out to us as injustice. And it calls the church to say, you ought to be engaged there. We see the, the sex trade in Southeast Asia, or the sweatshops, or whatever it is, or, or, or the injustices all around, the oppression that occurs. All of these things we see and the church responds because we hear the outcry of injustice. Just injustice alone cries out. It's not crying out in a righteous prayer to God. It's crying out injustice. Is there a child on the earth who, when abused, God does not hear it? Whether or not that child knows Christ, God hears that injustice. And here in the city of Sodom, it is so great and it is so grievous that he can no longer ignore it. He's in his throne in heaven And the sound of Sodom is drowning out the worship of the saints. And so he's going to go down and deal with it. And so if we're going to try to understand his justice, we should say when God is moved like this, it is uh, to judge of this kind of judgment. It happens when evil has reached its boiling point. He doesn't destroy cities because of an arbitrary sin. He destroys cities because they have a life of grievous sin. which should sober us when we think that the prophet Ezekiel describes the sin of Sodom this way. This is the sin of Sodom, that they were arrogant, they oppressed the poor, and they did detestable things in the eyes of God. I think When I think that way, I think there's a lot more towns today that look like Sodom. Here's the other thing we see. God says, I will go down and see. Now, this is, uh, fancy Bible people call this an anthropomorphism, which is just another fancy way of saying that sometimes God takes on human traits for our benefit so that we can kind of understand what's happening. So when the psalmist writes, the strong arm of the Lord will rescue you, we don't really think that the Lord's strong arm, physical strong arm, is going to reach out of heaven and rescue us. It's, just, it's expressing a spiritual idea using human parts. And it makes it easy for us because we understand what a strong arm is. When God says, your prayers have reached my ear, we don't really think that God is bending a physical ear towards us and listening to our prayers. Right? What if we pray silently? That whole theory is blown away. It's just God trying to explain in human terms for our benefit the way he works. And he does the same thing here. He says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to observe in the city if things are really as bad as I say they are. That's God's way of saying, you need to know that I'm going to know. Which is the second idea about God's justice and righteousness. God doesn't judge what he thinks is the case. God judges what he observes. God's judgments are based on empirical observations. He's not making a wag. He's not basing it on hearsay. He's not, he's not listening to your prayer because of your prayer, he's going to go over and shoot this guy with a lightning bolt. He'll listen to your prayer and then he'll go down and see if it's really as bad as you say it is. Which is not how we operate. So it makes it hard for us to appreciate. 
I usually don't even finish. I can't read fast enough to follow the news tickers at the bottom. So I usually get half the thought. Like, Tiger, what? (laughs) And I can't even finish it, but I'll tell you what. Within my half soundbite, man, I have a bucket load of judgment. Whew! I don't know that person. I haven't been there. I haven't experienced it. I have not observed it. But I have a whole book worth of judgments over these issues. That's how we are. We get one faulty, almost always faulty piece of misinformation from the news, and we ramp up these massive judgments. God observes what he judges. That is a baseline for righteous judgment. So he says, I'm going to go down. And I'm going to see if it's as bad as they say it is. So he sends his his two partners down. And when they leave, this is what happens. Verses 22 to 33. Now this is like one of the best conversations of Scripture. The men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Well, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him. What if only forty are found there? He said, for the sake of forty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Now, there's this episode that we just read, this interview between God and Abraham, where Abraham has a question for the Lord. Abraham's questioning something significant about God, and we should know what it is and what it isn't. Abraham is not questioning God's authority. There's no, Abraham doesn't say, well, God, who are you to say what's right and just? He doesn't say that. He doesn't at all imply it. In fact, he seems to imply that implicitly that God, to be God, is to know what's right and just. He also doesn't call into question the jurisdiction of God. In a polytheistic world, this is actually, I think, a unique point, that that Abraham doesn't say to God, well, God, you're my God, but 
You've never even visited the people in Sodom. Like, why, how do you have authority in their life? Isn't that out of your jurisdiction? Abraham doesn't at all imply that. In fact, Abraham says this, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? By this point in their life, Abraham recognizes that God, his God, isn't just his God, is God, whose jurisdiction is everything. And he also doesn't question God's knowledge. He doesn't say to God, well, how do you know that what they're doing is bad? And I think that's preempted in part by God saying, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to observe it. And so we should say that if, we, if we're going to know about God's justice and his righteousness, we'll say that a strong hand of judgment shows up at the culmination of evil. We'd say that God judges what he observes, and we should say that his jurisdiction, his authority, and his knowledge on the matter is perfect. He has complete authority over all he has made and complete knowledge over all he has observed. But this is the question then. If those aren't the questions, this is the question. Abraham is asking God, this is essentially what he's saying, is God, how do you expect to judge the wicked without destroying the righteous in the process? That's the issue that's at hand here. What Abraham's concerned about is, is how, many, how many wicked is God going to destroy while killing some righteous in the, in the crossfire? Abraham wants to know, what's the ratio? In this world where you're trying to get justice, right? You, just because there's a righteous person in there, you, 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 if the whole room is utterly wicked, do you just not judge it? Not to spare the one righteous person? Abraham wants to know, what's the deal? What's the rule, Lord? How, when, when do you finally say, there's only 30 righteous people, well, the city goes? What's going on there? Abraham wants to know, How do you reconcile your just treatment of the wicked with your just treatment of the righteous when they're together? That's the question. And so the interview starts. What if there were 50? What if there were 45? What if there were 40? God says, I would not do it. And then Abraham starts to speed up. Do you notice that? He goes by fives and he goes by tens. What if there were 30? What if there were 20? What if there were 10? Now, I think I know what you're thinking. Do you ever wish that he'd ask one more question? What is his deal? You know, he asked six questions. Isn't seven the magic number? Like, I so wish he'd ask the seventh question. What if there was, what? One righteous person. Our mind goes there. What if there was just one righteous person? Now, I don't know, and it would be wrong for me to speculate as to why Abraham stops at 10, why he uses 10 as his final number. But I do have a sense as to why he stops asking. It'll sound simple, but I think it's significant. Abraham stops asking because Abraham's question is answered. His question is, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And by the sixth time he's asked the Lord, you know what? He is convinced. He has peace in his heart that the judge of all the earth will do right. His questions aren't based on, actually, what's the actual number? Abraham's questions are based on, is this righteous God that I worship truly righteous? Do I have any hope to try to be righteous in the sight of God if he would arbitrarily smite me 
in an effort to make judgment of the wicked. That's what Abraham wants to know. And through asking the question, not once, not twice, not four times, but six times, by the end, Abraham has run out of words for God. And he has faith that God is righteous, God is just, and he will do what's right and just. Which to me highlights, by the way, uh, the difference between old Christians and young Christians. And I don't mean old people who are Christians. I mean people who are old in the faith and people who are young in the faith. People who are young in the faith, when a crisis hits, they're all full of questions for God. Like all of a sudden, God is on shaky ground. God is put, he's an interrogation. God, what would you do about this? How come God won't do this? Why doesn't God do that? What about this? What about that? What about that? You talk to an old Christian where like the tidal wave of life is falling on their family and they have nothing left and they're, they're living the life of Job and you say, how do you do this? And they say, I know that God is good. It's like they've run out of questions. Or they have the questions, but their faith of who God is is more important than the answer to the question. And I'll say, this is a natural process, right? We're all kind of young and kind of old in some ways. But the natural process of knowing God is running out of words with him. I think it's getting past all of our questions for God. Answer me this. Answer me this. Answer me this. To me, true knowledge of who God is shows up at the back end of that when we finally say, we know who you are. I'm going to stop asking questions because you're righteous and you're just and whatever you do is best. I think Abraham is an old Christian at the end of this conversation. But still, I do wish he'd asked that question. You know why? This is why I think we want that question asked. It's because there's no wiggle room with one. You know, with ten, the question is, well, what about nine? What about eight? There's kind of this clarity this clarity with one, that we go, there's no wiggle room there. It fits in a category. Go all the way down to one righteous person. And there's something clean about that. I can write theology on that. can't write theology with ten, but I can write theology on one. But, you know, if we were really going to ask this question, if we were there, sitting behind Abraham going, ask the question, ask it, we really should be thoughtful about the kind of way we'd ask it because the question's not fully answered if we said, what if there was just one righteous person? Let me give you an example. Let's say, let's say that Abraham had asked it. If there's just one righteous person in the city of Sodom, will you spare it? And if God said, if there's one in the city of Sodom, I'll spare it. Eventually, some theologian would write, well, what about the town of Gomorrah? Does that survive or not? What about all the other cities of the plain? So, so really, there's two ideas that kind of have to be pushed to their extreme. One is the number of the righteous has to be reduced to one to kind of make any categorical statement. And the other is the populace has to be exploded into such a massive number that it's truly saying something. What if Sodom had 12 people? It's not really saying much. So what if we said this? What if we said to God, God, in all the world, of every single human on the planet? This would be my question. If I could ask the seventh question, of all the people on the whole earth, what if there was just one man who was righteous? I would even blow it up more. I'd say over all time, 
through all humanity, God. I just want to know if there was just one man who in the space, time and space came to earth and was righteous and holy and perfect and clean and without sin, would you pass over us? And I would say, God would say, if there is just one, I will not destroy the earth. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. There's no one here who's righteous. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us our way. There is no one here who is righteous. Every one of us clings to the thought that if there's just one righteous man, one truly perfect person who has never sinned, who came to this earth and who died and gave satisfaction to God's judgment for us, that we would bear his righteousness. That's the question. It's not about whether there's ten in Sodom. It's whether there's one in humanity that matters. Let's see how this works itself out in the city. Now, if you've never read this before, if you're new here, or new to the Word, or new to the faith, or you've never found Genesis 19 in your life, hold on. I'm going to read, I'm going to try to stop around 15. The two angels arrive at Sodom in the evening. The Lord was sitting in the gateway of the city, excuse me, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him, and they entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you last tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under, my prote- under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play judge? We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and they pulled Lot back into the house and they shut the door. And then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness. So they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, son-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry to get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, and you, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. 
When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his daughters and led them to safety out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. You've got to read the whole rest of it later. It's awesome. But it's troubling. I mean, is there a more troubling section of Scripture at times? Because we have to ask ourselves, somehow Lot is outside of the city. Somehow Lot's rescued. Somehow Lot was saved. Which means what? Is Lot righteous? Is he righteous? After we just observed that kind of wickedness at the door, is he righteous? If he's not righteous, then why was he saved? I mean, the only other option we have is that God has some kind of Abrahamic nepotism going on here. You know, Abraham's my boy. Lot's his nephew. We go way back. Is God that arbitrary? Do we get a thousand pages of Scripture to reduce to a God who saves those who like he likes? Far be it from us. So what about Lot? Let me read to you Second Peter. Because it kind of puts the nail in the coffin. Makes the sermon harder. Second Peter chapter 2 is embedded in a text that's dealing with kind of how do you know how do you deal with false teachers? These teachers who sound like they're trying to preach righteousness, but they have evil in their hearts. And the whole thing is an encouragement that God knows. God will sort it out. This is how it reads. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, and if God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, the preacher of righteousness, and seven others, and if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Three times, Lot is righteous in Second Peter. So where is the righteousness of Lot to be found in Genesis? I think it's in the beginning of the 19th chapter. In fact, I think it's easy to pass, but it's there. The two angels arrive at Sodom. Do they look like angels? No, they look like travelers. They look like wayfarers, strangers. Remember last, year, last week when we talked about Abraham, the unique thing about Abraham was he acknowledged and recognized the three visitors as divine. And when he did, what did he do? He jumped up out of his seat. He ran before them. He said, my Lord. Sit, let me make a meal for you. And he went and cut the, you know, had the young calf prepared and the, and the milk and the curds. And he told his wife, quick, let's do this, let's do that. He set this meal up because he could tell that there was something about them. 
That there was God there. Well, these two strangers walk into the city of Sodom. Now, when it says they pass through the gate and Lot is sitting in the gate, that is, in the ancient town, the meeting place of influence. So that's center city in a certain kind of influential way. When, when, when kings, even when David, King David, goes to judge, he leaves his palace and he goes to the gate to judge. It's like a public form that's observable. So Lot is in the gate, but Lot's not alone in the gate. All of the people, all of these other sodomites are there with Lot. But who gets up? Lot. Who recognizes these visitors as divine? Lot. Who bows his face on the ground before them and says, My lords, come into my house? Lot. You know, the distinctive of a Christian is not that they get things right all the time. It's that they recognize God. That's the distinctive. That's where our righteousness hangs. Is not on whether or not we've done some really wicked or grievous thing. Wicked and grievous though this is, our righteousness does not hang on what we've done. It hangs on who we know. And when God comes to town, Lot knows it. He bows his face to the ground. He puts his arms out and he says, My lords, nobody else is doing this. In fact, everybody else in the town is going, right? Men from all parts of the town, the scripture says, young and old. Everybody else in the town is tagging these strangers up as the next victim. Do you not think that Lot knows what's going on? Do you not think that Lot knows what's at risk here? The strangers, the strangers decline his invitation. We'll sleep in the town square. What does Lot say? Heavens, no. If you stay there, you're dead. Come into my house. Christians are known by the fact that they invite God into their homes even when jeopardy is sitting behind it. Lot believes these messengers of God. Lot trusts in them. Lot, Lot, when they say the the city's going to be destroyed, what does Lot do? He springs to action. When he tells his sons-in-law the city's going to be destroyed, what do they do? (laughs) It's another laugh in Scripture, right? Ah, you're joking. That's silliness. Lot has faith, and it is credited to him as righteousness. I think about this particularly as the elements sit before us on this table, because so often we say we're justified by faith, but we believe in our hearts that we haven't done anything all that grievous. We rest on that idea. Like, I'm a dad. I've never pawned my daughter off to save my skin. As though that's some kind of mark of righteousness. The mark of righteousness is the knowledge of God. The mark of righteousness is knowing when God comes, inviting him into your home, and, and holding him fast to your life. That's the mark of righteousness. And Lot displays this here. He goes about it all wrong. He messes up. He does a despicable error. It's disappointing. Praise God. Praise God that my salvation is not lost when I do despicable, disappointing things. That my salvation is anchored to my faith in Jesus Christ. Because you may not have done something this vile before, but you've had a whole life of practice. So let's add it up. 
I bet all your mini vials make one big vial. I bet you we each got one grievous in our lives that we have to answer to. If we said to God, God, just combine it all up in a lump sum and indict me on this, that has got to be bad. Even for the best of you, that's got to be bad. And so I'd say that we all have to answer to what we've done at the door of our house. But we are all saved by who is in our home. And that's Jesus. Do you not see the symbology here of the salvation, the three visitors showing up and the salvation of them leading them out of the city? In the book of Revelation, you know the pictures given? Despite all the confusing symbology, this is what happens. God says, I'm going to destroy the earth. And he starts to reveal his destructive process. This is going to happen. Seals un- un- re- revealing for us. Trumpets revealing for us. Bowls revealing for us. And it gets to a point where the wrath is so bad it's about to culminate on the earth. Fire is about to pour out of heaven just like in chapter 19. And you know what happens? The scriptures say, stop. i got to mark my faithful first before I finish this up. This is Revelation. We are marked by faith, not by works, no matter how grievous you are. And as we come for communion, this is the error I want you to avoid, Christian. That if you're sitting there and you have on your soul grievous acts of sin, pick it. It's immaterial to us. No matter how grievous it is, if you have given it to Jesus Christ... This is for you. We should be bold in our taking of communion. We are resounding the overwhelming salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The one righteous man of all humanity that's walked the earth has provided for us salvation regardless of what we've done. So if you have that thing on your soul that you're going to let this pass because you're ashamed of God, you're ashamed that he wouldn't come after you, I'm here to say if Lot got saved from Sodom, This is for you. Likewise, if your intention to take these elements was at all based on what you've done at the doorstep of your house and has nothing to do with who's inside, this is not for you. This is the body of Christ. This is the salvation of Jesus, which is given to us through faith. The one righteous man sacrificed on our behalf to bestow upon us his righteousness is for us through faith. Come to the Lord's table.